We are back in Mark, and we're in chapter 11, but we're not in the next section from the last time we were in Mark. Because if you were here back in April on what we traditionally call Palm Sunday, we studied those first 11 verses then. So we're going to skip them for now because we've studied them together, and we're going to begin next in verse 12. I'll be there in a moment. First, I want to do a little word association with you. I'm going to say two words, and I don't want you to say it out loud, but I want you to think to yourself, what is the first thing that pops into your mind when I say these words? You ready? Destructive behavior. You got something in your mind? Okay. You may have thought drugs or alcohol. Um, Maybe somebody who's just a big risk taker. Someone who pursues pleasure at a great cost to himself or his loved ones. Or maybe you're just thinking about your toddler who colored on the wall yesterday. That also is destructive behavior of a different kind. But regardless of what came to your mind, our passage today shows Jesus saying some seemingly destructive things, doing some seemingly destructive things but it's not in the same way as the other people that you were just thinking of. Because as we know, Jesus was, and I guess I should say is, sinlessly perfect. Whenever he spoke or acted, even in anger, he never sinned. Whether he condemned a tree or whether he flipped over tables, he always did what his father gave him to do. Hopefully you've had a chance to find this passage in your Bible. I'd like to invite you to stand, please. I'm actually going to read a verse or two on either side of our section for today. I'm going to start in verse 11, and I'm going to read down to verse 21. So you follow along. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany... He was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves." And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful to have your word. We are so thankful that you have spoken 
by your servants, the prophets. You have spoken through holy men who were moved by your Holy Spirit, carried along by the Holy Spirit, and wrote out for us your very words. And Lord, we believe that those words are profitable for us today. That they are profitable to teach us, to instruct us, to correct us. Lord, allow your word to do what you send it to do. Would you help me by your Holy Spirit as I teach your word this morning? That your message for us would come through clearly? That you would give us ears to hear? Lord, your word is a mirror. And as we look into the mirror of your word this morning, we pray that you would show us ourselves as you see us. Lord, you are holy as we've been singing. And we are sinful and our hearts are sinful. And yet you have clothed us with your righteousness. You have made us right with you. You have given us peace with you through the blood sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. For that we thank and praise you. Work your will during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In that previous section, what we sometimes call the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday, the people hailed him as king. They recognized Jesus as the Messiah and he let them. Very different from anything else we read in the Gospels prior to this point. His time had come and he was acknowledging, he was even orchestrating that people would recognize him as the Messiah and they praised him. They blessed his name. Now, this passage shows us his first activities, his first actions after being proclaimed the king. You know what kind of actions they are? Judgment. Judgment on Jerusalem. Judgment specifically on the temple. How so? By condemning a fig tree and cleansing the temple. Those are the two events that we read about in this section. Both of those were symbols. They were symbolic acts that illustrated the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. This is from Warren Wiersbe's commentary. Israel was outwardly fruitless, represented by the tree, and inwardly corrupt, represented by the temple. So we have outward and inward. And frankly, they were both bad. But what we're going to see in this passage is when there's a disparity, when there's a disagreement, when there's a difference between outward and inward. That's hypocrisy. And God hates hypocrisy. That inconsistency between what we are inside and what we look like to everybody else. Knowing how to say the right thing and go the right place and wear the right thing and do the right thing. And yet inside... 
our hearts are far from him. So that is the main point of these two sections. We're dealing with a a few paragraphs here, dealing with two different subjects, the temple and the tree. But the point of both, I believe, is that God will judge hypocrisy. He will not stand for it. He will not overlook it. In time, he will judge it. He will deal with it. And that's what we're seeing in our passage today. Backing up once more to verse 11, just to touch on it and review, there it says, And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. When we read about the temple in this section, please don't have in your mind the Holy of Holies, the inner area where the Ark of the Covenant would have been. That's not what this means by temple. It's actually the courtyards. I'll show you a diagram later on. We'll see that. So this is actually the court of the Gentiles that we're going to deal with most specifically, but it's the temple complex. It's the temple mount. It's the collection of buildings and walls and partitions and such. And it says that he looked around at all things. He was observing. He was exercising his authority. We could call him a divine building inspector. But he wasn't just looking at the buildings. He certainly wasn't in awe of the buildings. Because in addition to seeing the buildings as he looked around and he observed what was going on that Sunday night, he was also observing the hearts of the worshipers. And between what he saw Sunday and Monday, I don't think he liked what he saw. What we're going to study today and next time we're in Mark is another sandwich structure. We've been talking about these Markin sandwiches. And that's what he does again today. What we see is the tree and then the temple and then back to the tree. First, Mark tells us about the fig tree in verses 12 to 14. Then he moves on with the story of Jesus in the temple in verses 15 to 19. And after that, he comes back to the fig tree in verses 20 and 21. So that's a little bit of an outline for you of what's going on through this section from tree to temple and back to tree. So what's the connection between the temple and the tree? One of my study Bibles put it this way. The temple was supposed to be a place of worship, but true worship had disappeared. The fig tree showed promise of fruit, but it produced none. So in addition to hypocrisy being a key idea in this passage, I'm not going to call it a key word because you're not going to find the word hypocrisy in here. Similar would be fruitlessness. There's no fruit. No fruit on the tree, and there's no spiritual fruit in the temple. That's what they have in common in this section. In both cases, what was supposed to be present wasn't. It was nowhere to be found. Verse 12. Now the next day, that means Monday, Monday of Passion Week, when they had come from out from Bethany, he was hungry. It's morning, we know from Matthew. In fact, The terminology Matthew uses, it's probably before 6 a.m. It's early in the morning. And it says that Jesus is hungry. And if you start reading study Bibles and commentaries, you're going to come up with all sorts of ideas, theories that people have about why was he hungry. The truth is we don't know. Mark doesn't tell us. It tells us he's hungry. But that leads to the next verse, verse 13, and seeing From afar, a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. 
when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, I don't know what you know about fig trees, but I know almost nothing about fig trees. But in that part of the world, they were a popular source of inexpensive food, an easy snack. We know also from Matthew that this tree was a part by itself. It was beside the road. So this is not on anybody's private property. Jesus isn't stealing anybody else's figs. But this standalone tree has leaves, and fig trees in that part of the world yield two crops per year, sometimes even three. Sometimes there's a winter crop in December. So very great production of these figs. This tree, however, had nothing but leaves. You say, why does Mark include that detail? The answer is that the way the tree grows, if there are leaves there, there should be some sort of fruit or pre-fruit on there. Normally they grow at the same time. So in this case, it looked really good. It looked promising. Jesus was hungry. He approaches the tree. Why does he approach that tree? Because it has leaves on it. It may have been the healthiest looking, tallest fig tree around. But it has nothing but leaves. More specifically, it has no fruit. You could say that the leaves were hiding something. They were hiding the lack of fruit. Can you think of any other time in the Bible where fig trees were used to hide something? Anything coming to your mind? How about Genesis? Genesis 3, 7, talking about Adam and Eve, the man and his wife. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So if we can get symbolic about this a little bit, the fruit that should have been on this tree could be likened to spiritual fruit. But the leaves, as in the case of Adam and Eve, are works of the flesh. What had happened? Adam and Eve had sinned. Satan tempted Eve. She ate. She gave it to her husband. They sinned. And we don't know. Maybe, maybe they had something like glowing clothes. We don't know quite what it was like. But at that point, after they had sinned, they were aware that they had no clothes on. They were naked. So what are they going to do? They're going to cover themselves the best they can. And what did they use? They used fig leaves to try to hide the fact that they were naked. So the association between the works of the flesh, hypocrisy, and fig leaves goes all the way back to the garden. I found that interesting. But coming back to our passage here, he goes to the fig tree. He's hungry. He sees that it has leaves. He gets up to it. It has no fruit. It has nothing but leaves. And then Mark says, for it was not the season of figs. And you're thinking, then why is he looking for them? That doesn't seem fair. Why is he expecting there to be figs if it's not the season for figs? Well, like I said, normally figs grow as the leaves fill out. And this one had nothing but leaves at that moment. The next normal fig season would have been June. And what month were we in? Somewhere around March, maybe April. We're, we're in that March-April time frame for Passover. We're at least a month away from fig season. So why would Jesus come to a fig tree looking for figs when it wasn't the season for figs? You need to go back and read the verse again because it doesn't say he was looking for figs. Read it. Verse 13 says, He went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. Now, I told you I know almost nothing about fig trees, but I've read a lot about fig trees this week. So let me share with you a paragraph from my Bible knowledge commentary. The time of year was Passover, 
middle of the month of Nisan, which is April, March, April. In Palestine, fig trees produced crops of small edible buds in March, followed by the appearance of large green leaves in early April. The early green fruit, again, this isn't figs yet, but it's an early, it's a bud that they could eat. The, I don't know how to pronounce it, but pagim is the word. And these little buds were common food for lo local peasants. So this is a snack. This is not a fig yet, but it's a little bud that people would eat. They, they weren't even that tasty, but they would fill you up. An absence of these buds, despite the tree's green foliage promising their presence, indicated it would bear no fruit that year. Eventually, these buds dropped off when the normal crop of figs formed and ripened in late May and June, the fig season. Thus, it was reasonable for Jesus shortly before Passover, mid-April, to expect to find something edible on that fig tree, even though it was not the season for figs. So do you have the picture? He comes up to the tree because it has leaves, and he expects to find something on it. What does he expect to find on it? I read that these little buds, these little pods, are maybe up to the size of a cherry, and they'll be on there, and they'll, eventually the wind will knock them off, because that's not the main fruit that's going to grow there. But if there are leaves, then there should be some of these pagim. And he could eat those. But there weren't. And the fact that there weren't, were no pagim along with the leaves meant there would be no figs on that tree for that season. You with me? We've all learned about fig tree style. Verse 14. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. A lot of times we, we call this the cursing of the fig tree, and that's how Peter interprets it when we get down to verses 20 and 21. But he's condemning this tree. It should have had fruit, but it was barren. What is it symbolizing? It's symbolizing the hypocrisy of the nation of Israel. He is scolding the tree, if you will, for its fruitlessness. Now, in an earlier lesson in Mark, one of our earlier studies, back in chapter 7, Jesus quoted from Isaiah. He was talking to the religious leaders, and he quoted from Isaiah and said this, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that's the picture here. It's one of hypocrisy. When your inner person is different from your outer person, we call that hypocrisy. So when we read this little section, what we're seeing is Israel. It was a barren fig tree. And someone said, the leaves only covered its nakedness. Now we said the fig tree is going to have something in common with the temple. So the magnificence of the temple and its ceremonies hid the fact that Israel had not brought forth the fruit of righteousness demanded by God. So what we're seeing enacted here is a visual parable. You think, isn't a parable a story Jesus told? Well, yes, there's an element of that. But in this case, it's acted out. Much in the same way we observed Lord's Supper earlier, that is an acted out sermon. Well, this is an acted out parable. Jesus is showing through symbols that judgment is coming on their hypocrisy, but it's not just theirs. Fig trees, as you read the Old Testament, represented Israel. That was a common analogy. But let's not think, oh, well, that doesn't apply to me then. No, it applies to us too. 
because hypocrisy can creep into our lives. Someone said, just because we look good, because our leaves are large and shiny, does not mean that we're bearing fruit pleasing to God. What's being predicted here? By means of this tree that he's condemning, that we read later is going to shrivel up, he is predicting that the nation of Israel, it's going to lose its temple that's so corrupt. AD 70 is coming. The judgment is coming. This is a warning passage. He's using the symbology of this fig tree to show that he's going to judge the hypocrisy. He's going to judge this fruitlessness. Why? Main idea of this section is that God will judge hypocrisy. Now, to get the rest of the story, I, when I read the entire section earlier, I read 20 and 21 also. So go ahead and glance down the page or scroll down to it. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So it happened just as he had said. And we're going to talk about that next time because Jesus uses that and then talks about prayer and faith. So the next time we're in Mark, we'll study those verses and apply them. But I want you to know that when Jesus says, let no fruit ever grow on you again, he means it, and it happens. He's the creator, and this is his tree. And the fact that it's not going to bear any fruit this season, it's just never going to bear fruit again, period. And that's how it played out. Now, we're headed into the section that we call the temple cleansing this is not the first time Jesus has done this. And there's some disagreement among scholars, but most conservative scholars believe that what's recorded over in John chapter 2 is a different cleansing at the beginning of his earthly ministry. Three years prior to this one that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Verse 15 says, So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the table of, tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Reminder, Jesus went into the temple. Later we see the phrase, in the temple. We're talking about the large court of the Gentiles. So there are actually multiple courts as you, I would draw it in concentric circles. That's not quite how it's designed, and I'll show you. But we have the court of the Gentiles, the court of women, the court of Israel, which was where the men could go, and the court of the priests. And that was limited access. If I'm a Gentile, and I am, I can't go past the court of the Gentiles. If I am an Israelite woman, I can't go past the court of women. If I'm an Israelite man but not a priest, I can't go past the court of Israel. And if I'm a priest, I still can't go into the Holy of Holies, just the high priest and only once a year. So there's limited access built into this. Here, here's some artist renderings of what it might have looked like. We have the temple. You can see it looks almost like a box. And we have these different groups. So the court of the Gentiles would be out on the sides, the way that's drawn. And the, the next one's a diagram. doesn't look as pretty, but it's easier to read. So we have the court of the Gentiles would be on the perimeter. And then the women's court, that's where the treasury is. We'll get to talk about that in a few weeks in a different chapter. And then the court of Israel, the court of the men, and then the court of priests. So that gives you the idea of what we're talking about. What's wrong in this picture is happening in the court of the Gentiles. What was going on there? The high priest Caiaphas had authorized a market. In the South, sometimes they're called flea markets. A bazaar, an outdoor market. That's what had come into, with his approval, had been added to 
this area of the court of the Gentiles. So what, what's being marketed there? The items that they needed for their temple sacrifice, the animals, the oil, the wine, and, and so on, the, the grain. And what does it say Jesus began to do? He went into the temple and began to drive out. Drive out. Where have we heard that before? Same word used most of the time in this gospel in particular for driving out evil spirits, driving out demons. So this is a very strong word. He's going to drive out, expel, who? Those who bought and sold in the temple. What were they buying and selling? Well, they were buying Roman and Greek currency. If I am a pilgrim coming for the Passover, I, as a man over 20 years of age, have to pay my half-shekel temple tax. I can't do that with the money I brought with me. I have to have it converted. So I have my Roman coin or I have my Greek coin, and I have to come and say, okay, I want to pay my temple tax. Well, you can't do it in that currency. Yes, I know. So what's the exchange rate? And they would pad those numbers and charge high fees. I read 10 and 12% just to convert the currency so I could use it. So that's what they're buying. They're buying secular currency, turning it into what's approved to pay the temple tax. And then they were selling animals and other items that were associated with sacrifice. Most pilgrims didn't bring their lamb with them because that was inconvenient. You'd have to bring the food. You'd have to stop along the way. You would be inconvenienced. So Leviticus allowed for the person to bring money instead and to, to buy a lamb or whatever animal he needed when he got to the temple. What Leviticus did not say was set up for the sale of animals there in the temple. That wasn't there. That wasn't God's intention. That's what they had added to this court of the Gentiles. So the priesthood had a corner on the market. Can you imagine it? I'm coming. I don't have my animal with me. I don't have the right currency. So I come and I exchange the money. And then I come over here and say, I'd like to buy a lamb, please. And they have these lambs that don't have any spot or blemish. They are the approved animals. Because if I go somewhere else in Jerusalem and buy one and bring it, then they're probably going to find fault with it. And I'm going to have to buy theirs anyway. So I come and they tell me, that's going to be... $150. And I say, okay, here you go. No, I'm sorry, you can't pay in that currency. So now I have to go back over here and I have to get my money exchanged and I come back and he had ripped me off and I come back. Oh, I'm sorry, we just sold the last lamb. But we have this bullock and it's $450. Okay, but you have to go back and you have to get your money. So they had a racket going on. Some, some have compared this to Caiaphas and Annas and, and their sons and family. This was the mob. This was the mafia of the temple compound. And they were getting rich. This is Passover. This is the time of year converted to today's dollars. Many people think that what Caiaphas got, his take on this would have been in the millions every year at Passover. Crazy amount of money. Can you imagine why they would have upset that Jesus wouldn't let them continue it? That's what's going on. They are ripping off the people. They were getting them coming and going. And what did Jesus do about it? He started flipping tables. He overturned the tables. Which ones? The ones of the money changers. So there are coins going everywhere. This is really a fairly violent act. And we have this idea of Jesus meek and mild, and he was. There has never been anyone who was meeker than Jesus, meekest person who ever lived. But meekness as you've probably heard, it's not weakness. It's power under control. And this is a moment 
when he exercised his strength, his power that was always there, he did it to obey his father because this is for his father's honor. The first time he cleansed the temple in John, he says, the zeal of your house, God, has eaten me up. He's doing this to protect his father's name and reputation, and he's doing it to protect the poor. More about that in a moment. So he's overturning tables, flipping them for the money changers. So the money changers have been getting rich. They have all this coinage piled up, and he's, they're now they're scattered everywhere, and they're trying to pick up all their money, their gold, their coins. What's interesting to me is that he overthrew the tables of the money changers, but he overturned, what does it say? The seats of them who sold the doves. If every word of Scripture is inspired, then what's the difference? Well, this is a guess, an educated guess. If these little cages were set up on the tables and he flips over those tables, then he could harm the doves. And he's not there to hurt the animals. So he takes their chairs, those that are sitting at those tables, and he flips those. First time in, in John's account, he had made, driven them out, told them to stop it. This time he flips over their benches, their seats. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple, verse 16. What's that? Well, people were using, the Temple Mount is huge in acreage, and people were using this as a shortcut. Maybe they're at the market over here, and they need to go over here, and they're just carrying whatever they have with them. The priests and others would have been carrying various utensils, and and they're just using it as a shortcut, a pass-through. And he's saying, stop it. And the verb tense is here. It seems like he was making them stop, and he was standing guard, preventing it, perhaps for hours. And by now, as you can imagine, a crowd was forming. And verse 17 says, Then he taught, saying to them, it is, is it not written? He asks us a question. Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? I know it's going to take a moment to work through this. You don't have to turn there, but I want to show you the verses that he's quoting from Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. So Isaiah 56, starting in verse 6, says, Also the sons of the foreigner, who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servant. So who are we talking about here? The sons of the foreigner. We're talking about Gentiles, the nations. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Verse 7, even them... I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in, what's it say there? My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called what? A house of prayer for whom? For all nations. A house of prayer for all nations. What's going on here? All of this circus is taking place in the court of the Gentiles. If I'm a Gentile and I come believing in the true God, Yahweh, what can I do? I can come to the court of the Gentiles and I can pray. It's intended to be a house of prayer. I can come seeking the one true God, Yahweh. Now, what's going on there? Buying and selling. 
exchange of coins, selling animals. Have you ever been to a prayer meeting in a barn? Have you ever been to a prayer meeting at a public marketplace? Like, go to the, go to the state fair and have a prayer meeting. How's it going to go? If you're like me, it's hard enough to pray when it's quiet and I'm by myself. Because my mind's still going to go here and there and ding, ding, ding. But in the middle of this circus, this is how the Gentiles are supposed to be able to access God. This is the closest, logistically, physically, they can get to the one true God. So if I'm a Gentile worshiper and I come all my life, read this story, heard Sunday school lessons, heard lessons in school. And I think it's correct that Jesus was angered by people buying and selling in his house. I get that. But I think the bigger part of this that I've always overlooked is the fact that they were denying Gentiles a place to worship. They were denying the Gentiles a place of prayer. Because that's what he goes to. He quotes Isaiah, which I just read, and then we get to Jeremiah. Instead of my name, my house, my prayer, a house of prayer for all nations. What is it? Jeremiah seven eleven. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. So Jesus is quoting the Greek ter- translation, the Septuagint version of these passages. And Mark's the only one who adds that for the nations, for all nations, a house of prayer for all nations. This was the only part of the temple that Gentiles had access to. And these greedy religious leaders are creating an environment where nobody would be able to pray, probably not even hear yourself think. G. Campbell Morgan wrote about this den of thieves, that it's a place where thieves run when they want to hide. The chief priests and scribes were using the temple and its religious services to cover up their sin and hypocrisy. And here's the ironic part. Jesus has come into the temple and he has confronted the abuse, the excesses that are taking place there, the denial of a place for Gentiles to pray and to worship. What is he doing? He has come to purify, to cleanse the temple. And how do the religious leaders respond? Yes, me. Please purify me. No. They want to see how to destroy him. So when I began, I asked you about destructive behavior, and you may think, oh, yeah, he's been talking about the fig tree, or he might be talking about the temple. No, we've now arrived at the true destructive behavior in this passage. Verse 18. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. Scribes and chief priests, we'll read more about them as we continue in Mark, but these are the leadership of their ruling body, the Supreme Court of Israel, the Sanhedrin. What are they thinking about? They are making plans. It's not what should we do with him. It's we're going to destroy him. How? When? Plotting how to go about it. Now, any of you who've been in our study in Mark for any length of time, this is not new information, is it? Because all the way back in chapter 3, we read the Pharisees went out immediately and plotted with the Herodians against him, Jesus, 
how they might destroy him. Why? Because he had dared to heal a man with a withered hand, a, a deformed hand, on the Sabbath day. And they wanted to destroy him for it. So this has been ongoing for years now. And it says, all the people were astonished at his teaching. That's not new either. We read that all the way back in chapter 1, where it says, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. It wasn't about quoting this rabbi or that rabbi. He had authority in and of himself, and he just used it. He just demonstrated it by telling him, you can't do that here. In fact, you are taking what is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you're making it into a robber's hideout. And they want to destroy him for it, but they're afraid to. Why? Because the people are blown away by what they're hearing. They like him. They like the authority that he teaches with. And again, we have almost an anticlimax like we did on the day before. When we get to verse 19, it says, when evening had come, he went out of the city probably back to Bethany, back to the Mount of Olives area. That's what he did the first three evenings. When the day was over, he went back out. Now, what are we supposed to do about this? What? Great, now we know more about fig trees. Yes, now we know more about the temple. That's good, too. But what did I say the main point is? That God will judge hypocrisy. You know what that tells me? I'm not exempt. I don't get to audit the class. I still have to take the test. Is there hypocrisy in my life? There may be somebody with us online, somebody in this room, you've never put your faith in Jesus. Are you like the crowd? You're astonished. You like what you're hearing. This Jesus guy sounds good. His teaching has authority. I, I like that. But is it making any difference in your life? Are you willing to put your faith in him? He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Most of you I know, you have testimony of your life that you're a believer. What's your life look like? Do your inner person and your outer person agree? the Holy Spirit is working on your heart or you just want to see would I pass the test this is your homework assignment go home and read Matthew 23 and you're going to read over and over again woe unto you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites and he tells them what they're doing or not doing is the outside matching the inside Here's another way, perhaps a more positive way to look at it. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. If Jesus were to come up to the tree of your life today, is he going to see love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, faith, self-control? The fruit of the Spirit? Or 
Or is he going to see a bunch of leads? I know how to look good. I know how to sound good. I know how to sound spiritual. I know the right answer. But what do you find? What does he find? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Has the Holy Spirit pointed to something in your life today that needs to change? Is there a way in which you need to respond to his leading? Something that you need to start doing? Something you need to restart doing? Something you need to stop doing? Would you simply obey him? I don't know what it is. I don't even need to know what it is. But would you have the humility to say, Lord, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want my life to be inconsistent. And I'm asking you to make me whole again. He will. Lord, I know that this doesn't belong in my life as one of your children. Would you help me to obey you and to turn my back on that? He will. Our Father, would you speak truth into our lives? That's what we need. The still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. telling us the truth about you and telling us the truth about us. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who may know that they're dealing with an area of hypocrisy in their lives right now. I pray that they would follow your leading. Lord, I pray for any who don't know that they are dealing with hypocrisy. Our sin so often blinds us our pride so often argues on our own behalf. So give us grace to humble ourselves and vision to see ourselves as you see us. Lord, if there's anyone who does not know you, may this be the day that he or she cries out to you in faith and finds salvation and peace. In Jesus' name, amen.